Section six of Once a Week by A. A. Milne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter three A Baker's Dozen Part two Under Entirely New Management I know a fool of a dog who pretends that he is a cocker spaniel, and is convinced that the world revolves round him wonderingly. The sun rises so it may shine on his glossy morning coat. It sets so his master may know that it is time for the evening biscuit. If the rain falls, it is that a fool of a dog may wipe on his mistress's skirt his muddy boots. His day is always exciting, always the same good things. His night a repetition of his day, more gloriously developed. If there be a sacred moment before the dawn when he lies awake and ponders on life, he tells himself confidently that it will go on forever like this. A life planned nobly for himself, but one in which the master and mistress whom he protects must always find a place. And I think perhaps he would want a place for me too in that life, who am not his real master but yet one of the house. I hope he would. What Chum doesn't know is this. His master and mistress are leaving him. They are going to a part of the world where a fool of a dog with no manners is a nuisance. If Chum could see all the good little London dogs, who at home sit languidly on their mistress's lap, and abroad take their view of life through a muff much bigger than themselves, if he could see the big, obedient dogs who walk solemnly through the park, carrying their master's stick, never pausing in their impressive march, unless it be to plunge into the serpentine and rescue a drowning child, he would know what I mean. He would admit that a dog who cannot answer to his own name, and pays but little more attention to down, idiot, and come here, fool, is not every place's dog. He would admit it, if he had time. But before I could have called his attention to half the good dogs I had marked out, he would have sat down beaming in front of a motor-car. And then he would never have known what now he will know so soon that his master and mistress are leaving him. It has been my business to find a new home for him, this is harder than you think. I can make him sound lovable, but I cannot make him sound good. Of course, I might leave out his doubtful qualities and describe him merely as beautiful and affectionate. I might, but I couldn't. I think Chum's habitual smile would get larger. He would wriggle the end of himself more ecstatically than ever if he heard himself summed up as beautiful and affectionate. Anyway, I couldn't do it, for I get carried away when I speak of him, and I reveal all his bad qualities. I'm afraid he is a snob, I confess to one woman of whom I had hopes. He doesn't much care for what he calls the lower classes. Oh, she said. Yes, he hates badly dressed people. Corduroy trousers tied up at the knees always excite him. I don't know if any of your family... No, I suppose not, but if he ever sees a man with his trousers tied up at the knee, he goes for him. And he can't bear tradespeople, at least not the men. 
washerwomen he loves he rather likes the washing basket too once when he was left alone with it for a moment he appeared shortly afterwards on the lawn with a pair of well i mean he had no business with them at all we got them away after a bit of a chase and then they had to go to the wash again it seemed rather a pity when they'd only just come back of course i smacked his head for him but he looks so surprised and reproachful when he's done wrong that you never feel it's quite his fault i doubt if i shall be able to take him after all she said i've just remembered i forget what it was she remembered but it meant that i was still without a new home for chum what does he eat somebody else asked me it seemed hopeful i could see chum already installed officially i said he lives on puppy biscuits he also has the toast crusts after breakfast and an occasional bone privately he is fond of bees i have seen him eat as many as six bees in an afternoon sometimes he wanders down to the kitchen garden and picks the gooseberries he likes all fruit but gooseberries are the things he can reach best when there aren't any gooseberries about he has to be content with the hips and haws from the rose trees but really you needn't bother he can eat anything the only thing he doesn't like is whitening we were just going to mark the lawn one day and while we were busy pegging it out he wandered up and drank the whitening out of the marker it is practically the only disappointment he has ever had he looked at us and you could see that his opinion of us had gone down what did you put it there for if you didn't mean me to drink it he said reproachfully then he turned and walked slowly and thoughtfully back to his kennel he never came out till next morning really said my man well i shall have to think about it i'll let you know of course i knew what that meant with a third dog lover to whom i spoke the negotiations came to grief not apparently because of any fault of chums but because if you will believe it of my shortcomings at least i can suppose nothing else for this man had been enthusiastic about him he had reveled in the tale of chum's wickedness he had adored him for being so conceited he practically said that he would take him do i begged i'm sure he'd be happy with you you see he's not everybody's dog i mean i don't want any odd man whom i don't know to take him it must be a friend of mine so that i shall often be able to see chum afterwards so that what he asked anxiously so that i shall often be able to see chum afterwards weekends you know and so on i couldn't bear to lose the silly old ass altogether he looked thoughtful and when i went on to speak about chum's fondness for chickens and his other lovable ways he changed the subject altogether he wrote afterwards that he was sorry he couldn't manage with a third dog and i like to think he was not afraid of chum but only of me but i have found the right man at last a day will come soon when i shall take chum from his present home to his new one that will be a great day for him i can see him in the train wiping his boots effusively on every new passenger wriggling under the seat and out again from sheer joy of life i can see him in the taxi taking his one brief impression of a world that means nothing to him i can see him in another train joyous eager 
putting his paws on my collar from time to time, and saying excitedly, "'What a day this is!' "'And if he survives the journey, "'if I can keep him on the way from all the delightful deaths he longs to try, "'if I can get him safely to his new house, "'then I can see him. "'Well, I wonder. "'What will they do to him?' When I see him again, will he be a sober little dog, answering to his name, careful to keep his muddy feet off the visitor's trousers, grown-up, obedient, following to heel round the garden, the faithful servant of his master? Or will he be the same old silly ass, no use to anybody, always dirty, always smiling, always in the way, a clumsy, blundering fool of a dog who knows you can't help loving him? I wonder. Between ourselves, I don't think they can alter him now. Oh, I hope they can't. A Farewell Tour This is positively Chum's last appearance in print, for his own sake no less than for yours. He's conceited enough as it is, but if once he got to know that people are always writing about him in books, his swagger would be unbearable. However, I have said good-bye to him now. I have no longer any rights in him. Yesterday I saw him off to his new home, and when we meet again it will be on a different footing. Is that your dog? I shall say to his master. What is he, a cocker? Jolly little fellows, aren't they? I had one myself once. As Chum refused to do the journey across London by himself, I met him at Liverpool Street. He came up in a crate. The world must have seemed very small to him on the way. "'Hello, old ass,' I said to him through the bars, and in the little space they gave him he wriggled his body with delight. "'Thank heaven there's one of them alive,' he said. "'I think this is my dog,' I said to the guard, and I told him my name. He asked for my card. "'I'm afraid I haven't one with me,' I explained. When policemen touch me on the shoulder and ask me to go quietly, when I drag an old gentleman from underneath motor-buses and they decide to adopt me on the spot, on all the important occasions when one really wants a card, I never have one with me. "'Can't give him up without proof of identity,' said the guard, and Chum grinned at the idea of being thought so valuable. I felt in my pocket for letters— there was only one, but it offered to lend me ten thousand pounds on my note of hand alone. It was addressed to Dear Sir, though I pointed out to the guard that I was the Sir, he still kept tight hold of Chum. Strange that one man should be prepared to trust me with ten thousand pounds, and another should be so chary of confiding to me a small black spaniel. "'Tell the gentleman who I am,' I said imploringly through the bars. "'Show him you know me.' "'He's really all right,' said Chum, looking at the guard with his great honest brown eyes. "'He's been with us for years.' And then I had an inspiration. I turned down the inside pocket of my coat, and there stitched into it was the label of my tailor, with my name written on it. I had often wondered why tailors did this. Obviously they know how stupid guards can be. "'I suppose that's all right,' said the guard reluctantly. "'Of course I might have stolen the coat. I see his point.' 
"'You... you wouldn't like a nice packing-case for yourself?' I said timidly. "'You see, I thought I'd put Chum on the lead. I've got to take him to Paddington, and he must be tired of his shell by now. It isn't as if he were really an armadillo.' The guard thought he would like a shilling and a nice packing-case. Wood, he agreed, was always wood, particularly in winter. "'How are you taking him?' he asked, getting to work with a chisel. "'Underground?' "'Underground!' I cried in horror. "'Take chum on the underground. Take—have you ever taken a large live conjure eel on the end of a string into a crowded carriage?' The guard never had. "'Well, don't. Take him in a taxi instead.' Don't waste him on other people. The crate yawned slowly, and Chum emerged all over straw. We had an anxious moment, but the two of us got him down and put the lead on him. Then Chum and I went off for a taxi. Hooray, said Chum, wriggling all over. Isn't this splendid? I say, which way are you going? I'm going this way. No, I mean the other way. Somebody had left some of his milk cans on the platform. Three times we went round one in opposite directions and unwound ourselves the wrong way. Then I hauled him in, took him struggling in my arms, and got into a cab. The journey to Paddington was full of interest. For a whole minute Chum stood quietly on the seat, rested his forepaws on the open window, and drank in London. Then he jumped down and went mad. He tried to hang me with the lead, and then in remorse tried to hang himself. He made a dash for the little window at the back, missed it, and dived out of the window at the side, was hauled back, and kissed me ecstatically in the eye with his sharpest tooth. "'And I thought the world was at an end,' he said, "'and there were no more people. Oh, I am an ass. I say, did you notice I'd had my hair cut?' How do you like my new trousers? I must show you them. He jumped onto my lap. No, I think you'll see them better on the ground, he said, and jumped down again. Or no, perhaps you would get a better view if... He jumped up hastily. And yet, I don't know, he dived down. Though, of course, if you... Oh, Lord, this is a day. And he put both paws lovingly on my collar. Suddenly he was quiet again. The stillness, the absence of storm in the taxi, was so unnatural that I began to miss it. "'Buck up, old fool,' I said, but he sat motionless by my side, plunged in thought. I tried to cheer him up. I pointed out King's Cross to him. He wouldn't even bark at it. I called his attention to the poster outside the Euston Theatre of the two Biffs. For all the regard he showed, he might never even have heard of them.' The monumental masonry by Portland Road failed to uplift him. At Baker Street he woke up and grinned cheerily. "'It's all right,' he said. "'I was trying to remember what happened to me this morning. Something rather miserable. I thought, but I can't get a hold of it. However, it's all right now. How are you?' And he went mad again. At Paddington I bought a label at the bookstall, and wrote it for him. He went round and round my leg, looking for me. Funny thing, he said, as he began to unwind. He was here a moment ago. I'll just go round once more. Or rather think, ow, oh, there you are. 
I stepped off him, unraveled the lead, and dragged him to the parcel's office. "'I want to send this by the two o'clock train,' I said to the man on the other side of the counter. "'Send what?' he said. I looked down. Chum was making himself very small and black in the shadow of the counter. He was completely hidden from the sight of anybody the other side of it. "'Come out,' I said, "'and show yourself.' "'Not much,' he said. "'A parcel? I'm not going to be a jolly old parcel for anybody.' "'It's only a way of speaking,' I pleaded. "'Actually, you're travelling as a small black gentleman. You will go with the guard, a delightful man.' Chum came out reluctantly. The clerk leant over the counter and managed to see him. "'According to our regulations,' he said, and I always dislike people who begin like that. He has to be on a chain. A leather lead won't do. Chum smiled all over himself. I don't know which pleased him more, the suggestion that he was a very large and fierce dog, or the impossibility now of his travelling with the guard, delightful man though he may be. He gave himself a shake and started for the door. "'Tut, tut, it's a great disappointment to me,' he said, trying to look disappointed, but his back would wriggle. "'This chain business, silly of us not to have known. Well, well, we shall be wiser another time. Now let's go home.' Poor old chum. I had known. From a large coat pocket I produced a chain. "'Dash it,' said chum, looking up at me pathetically. "'You might almost want to get rid of me.' He was chained, and the label tied on to him. Forgive me that label, chum. I think that was the worst offense of all. And why should I label one who was speaking so eloquently for himself, who said from the tip of his little black nose to the end of his stumpy black tail, I'm a silly old ass, but there's nothing wrong in me, and they're sending me away. But, according to the regulations, one must obey the regulations, chum. I gave him to the guard, a delightful man. The guard and I chained him to a brake or something. Then the guard went away, and Chum and I had a little talk. After that, the train went off. Goodbye, little dog. The Truth About Home Rails Imagine us, if you can, sitting one on each side of the fire, I with my feet on the mantelpiece, Marjorie curled up in the blue armchair, both of us intent on the morning paper. To me, by good chance, has fallen the sporting page. To Marjorie, the foreign, political, and financial intelligence of the day. What? said Marjorie. Does it mean when it says... She stopped and spelled it over to herself again. I put down my piece of the paper and prepared to explain. The desire for knowledge in the young cannot be too strongly encouraged, and I have always flattered myself that I can explain, in perfectly simple language, anything which a child wants to know. For instance, I once told Marjorie what miniature rifle-shooting meant. It was a headline which she had come across in her paper. The explanation took some time, owing to Marjorie's preconceived idea that a bird entered into it somewhere. Several times, when I thought the lesson was over, she said, "'Well, what about the bird?' But I think I made it plain to her in the end, though maybe she has forgotten about it now. "'What?' 
said Marjorie. Does it mean when it says home rails firm? I took up my paper again. The Cambridge 15, I was glad to see, were rapidly developing into a first-class team, and home rails firm, repeated Marjorie and looked up at me. My mind worked rapidly, as it always does in a crisis. Uh, what did you say? I asked, in surprise. What does home rails firm mean? Where does it say that? I went on, still thinking at lightning speed. There. It said it yesterday, too. Ah, yes. I made up my mind. Well, that, I said, I think that is something you must ask your father. I did ask him yesterday. Well, then, he told me to ask Mummy. Coward. You can be sure, I said firmly, that what Mummy told you would be right. And I returned to my paper. Mummy told me to wait till you came. Really, these parents, the way they shirk their responsibilities nowadays is disgusting. Home rails firm, said Marjorie, and settled herself to listen. It is good that children should be encouraged to take an interest in the affairs of the day, but I do think that a little girl might be taught by her father, or, if more convenient, mother, which part of a newspaper to read. Had Marjorie asked me the difference between a bunker and a banker, had she demanded an explanation of ultimatum or guillotine, I could have done something with it. But to let a child of six fill her head with ideas as to the firmness or otherwise of home rails is hardly nice. However, an explanation had to be given. Well, it's like this, Marjorie, I said at last. Supposing, well, you see, supposing, that is to say, if I... And then I stopped. I had a sort of feeling, intuition, they call it, and I was beginning the wrong way. Go on, said Marjorie. Perhaps I had better put it this way. Supposing you were to... Well, we'd better begin further back than that. You know what... No, I don't suppose you do know that. Well, if I... That is to say, when a man... You know, it's rather difficult to explain this, Marjorie. Are you explaining it now? I'm just going to begin. Thank you, Uncle. I lit my pipe slowly, while I considered again how best to approach the matter. Home rails firm, said Marjorie. Isn't it a funny thing to say? It was. It was a very silly thing to say. Whoever said it first might have known what it would lead to. Perhaps I can best explain it like this, Marjorie, I said, beginning on a new tack. I suppose you know what firm means. What does it mean? Ah, well, if you don't know that, I said, rather pleased, perhaps I had better explain that first. Firm means that, that is to say, you call a thing firm if it, well, if it doesn't, that is to say, a thing is firm if it can't move. Like a house? Well, something like that. This chair, for instance, and I put my hand on her chair, is firm because you can't shake it. You see, it's quite... Hello, what's that? Oh, you bad uncle, you've knocked the caster off again, cried Marjorie, greatly excited at the incident. This is too much, I said bitterly. Even the furniture is against me. 
"'Go on explaining,' said Marjorie, rocking herself in the now wobbly chair. "'I decided to leave firm. It is not an easy word to explain at the best of times. And when everything you touch goes and breaks itself, it becomes perfectly impossible.' "'Well, so much for that,' I said. "'And now we come to rails. You know what rails are?' "'Like I've got in the nursery?' This was splendid. I had forgotten these for a moment. "'Exactly. Rails your train goes on. Well, then, home rails would be rails at home.' "'Well, I've got them at home,' said Marjorie, in surprise. "'I couldn't have them anywhere else.' "'Quite so. Then home rails firm would mean that, er, home rails were, er, firm.' "'But mine aren't, because they wobble. You know they do.' "'Yes, but—' "'Well, why do they say home rails firm when they mean home rails wobble?' "'Ah, uh, that's just it. The point is that when they say home rails firm, they don't mean that the rails themselves are firm. In fact, they don't mean at all what you think they mean, and they mean something quite different. "'What do they mean?' "'I am just going to explain,' I said stiffly. "'Or perhaps I had better put it this way,' I said ten minutes later. "'Supposing—oh, Marjorie, it is difficult to explain.' "'I must know,' said Marjorie. "'Why do you want to know so badly?' "'I want to know a million million times more than anything else in the whole world.' "'Why?' "'So as I can tell Angela,' said Marjorie. I plunged into my explanation again. "'Angela is three and I can quite see how important it is that she should be sound on the question. THE KING'S SONS "'Tell me a story,' said Marjorie. "'What sort of a story?' "'A fairy story, because it's Christmas time.' "'But you know all the fairy stories. "'Then tell me a new fairy story.' "'Right,' I said. "'Once upon a time there was a king who had three sons.' The eldest son was a very thoughtful youth. He always had a reason for everything he did, and sometimes he would say things like, economically, it is to the advantage of the state that, or the civic interests of the community demand that, before doing something specially horrid. He didn't want to be unkind to anybody, but he took what he called a large view of things, and if you happened to ask for a third help of plum pudding, he took the large view that you would be sorry about it next morning, and so you didn't have your plum pudding. He was called Prince Proper. The second son was a very wise youth. You couldn't catch him anyhow. If you asked him whether he knew the story of the three wells, or why does a chicken cross the road, or anything really amusing like that, he would always say, "'Oh, I heard that years ago. "'And whenever you began, Adam and Eve and pinched me, "'he would pinch you at once, without waiting, like a gentleman, "'until you had got to the end of your verse. "'He was called Prince Clever. "'And the third son was just wonderfully beautiful. "'He had the most marvelously pink cheeks "'and long golden hair that you've ever seen.' I don't much care for that style myself, but in the country in which he lived it was admired more than I can tell you. He was called Prince Goldenlocks. I'll give you three guesses why. 
Now the king had reigned a long time, so long that he was tired of being king, and he often used to wonder which of his sons ought to succeed him. Of course, nowadays they never wonder, as the eldest son becomes king at once, and quite right, too, but in those days it was generally left to the sons to prove which among themselves was the most worthy. Sometimes they would all be sent out to find the magic dragon's tooth, and only one would come back alive, which would save a lot of trouble. Or else, after a lot of discussion, they would be told to go and find the beautiful princess for themselves, and the one which brought back the most beautiful princess, but very often that would lead to another discussion. The best way of all was to call in a fairy to help. A fairy has all sorts of tricks for finding out about you, and her favorite plan is to pretend to be something else and see what you do. So the king called in a fairy and said, "'Tomorrow I am sending out my three sons into the world to seek their fortune. I want you to test them for me and find out which is the most fitted to succeed to my throne. If it should happen to be Prince Goldenlocks, but of course I don't want to influence you in any way,' "'Leave it to me,' said the fairy. "'You agree, no doubt, that the quality most desirable in a king is love and kindliness?' "'Yes,' said the king, doubtfully. "'I was sure of it. Well, I have a way of putting this quality to the test which has never yet failed.' And with that she vanished. She could have gone out the door quite as easily, but she preferred to vanish.' I expect you know what her way was. You have read about it often in your fairy books. On the next day, as Prince Proper was coming along the road, she appeared suddenly in front of him in the shape of a poor old woman. Please give me something to buy a crust of bread, pretty gentleman, she pleaded. I'm starving. Prince Proper looked at her sternly. Economically, he said, it is to the advantage of the state that the submerged classes should be a charge on the state itself and not on individuals. The civic interests of the community demand that promiscuous charity should be sternly discouraged. Surely you see that for yourself? The fairy didn't, quite. The language had taken her by surprise. In all the previous adventures of this kind, two of the young princes had refused her roughly, and the third had shared his last piece of bread with her. This adventure was going all wrong. "'Let me explain it to you more fully,' went on Proper, and for an hour and twenty-seven minutes he did so. Then he went on his way, leaving a dazed fairy behind him. By and by Prince Clever came along. Suddenly he saw a poor old woman in front of him. "'Please give me something to buy a crust of bread,' she pleaded. "'I'm starving.' Prince Clever burst into a roar of laughter. "'You don't catch me,' he said. "'I've read about this a hundred times. "'You're not an old woman at all. "'You're a fairy.' "'What do you mean?' she stammered. "'This is a silly test of fathers. "'Well, you can tell him he's got one son "'who's clever enough to see through him.' "'And he went on his way.' By and by, Prince Goldenlocks came along. I need not say that he did all that you would expect of a third and youngest son, who has pink cheeks, long golden hair, and, as I ought to have said before, a very loving nature. 
he shared his last piece of bread with the poor old woman. Surely he will get the throne. But the fairy was an honest fairy. She did understand Proper's point of view. She had to admit that, if Clever saw through her deception, it was honourable of him to have said so. And though, of course, her loving heart was all for Prince Goldenlocks, she felt that it would not be fair to award the throne to him without a further trial. So she did another thing that she was very fond of doing. She changed herself into a pretty little dove, and, right in front of Prince Proper, she flew with a hawk in pursuit of her. "'Now we shall see,' she said to herself, "'which of the three youths has the softest heart.' "'You can guess what Proper said.' life he said is one constant battle nature he said is ruthless and the weakest must go to the wall if i kill the hawk he said i am kind to the dove but am i he said and i think there was a good deal in this am i kind to the caterpillar or whatever it is that the dove eats of course you know there is that to be thought of Anyhow, after soliloquizing for forty-seven minutes, Prince Proper went on his way, and by and by Prince Clever came along. You can guess what Clever said. My whiskers, he said, this is older than the last. I knew this in my cradle. With one of those nasty, sarcastic laughs that I hate so much, he went on his way, and by and by Prince Goldenlocks came along. Now then, Goldenlocks, the throne is almost yours. You can guess what Goldenlocks said. Poor little dove, he said, but I can save its life. Rapidly, he fitted an arrow to his bow, and with careful aim let fly at the pursuing hawk. I say again that Prince Goldenlocks was the most beautiful youth you have ever seen in your life, and he had a very loving nature. But he was a poor shot he hit the dove is that all said marjorie that's all i said good night end of section six